Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. On this episode of Newt's World, we are continuing our series on artificial intelligence. As OpenAI's chat GPT-4 continues to develop and gain media attention and public debate, it has provoked a conversation in the creative community about when and how it should be used and who owns the rights to the work. The use of artificial intelligence in creative writing is part of what the Writers Guild of America's strike is about. Well, my guest today has taken a new approach. Journalist Stephen Marsh has been immersed in the world of AI since 2017. He is a believer in the benefits of AI as a tool for creative expression. And his new novella, Death of an Author, was written by three cutting-edge AI writing platforms. The result is a gripping mystery that is 95% written by AI. His AI author's name is Aidan Marchine, and 5% by Marsh, who skillfully crafted the story outline and machine prompts. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Stephen Marsh. He is a novelist and essayist, He wrote his first algorithmically generated story for Wired in 2017 and has written about artificial intelligence, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. His books include The Next Civil War and On Writing and Failure. Stephen, welcome. And I have to say, this is one of the more fun things we've done on Newt's World. I mean, you know, is there a more fascinating subject in the world right now? I don't actually think there is. It's certainly at the absolute cutting edge. But I'm curious, when did you start getting interested in artificial intelligence? In 2012, I wrote an article for the LA Review of Books called Against Digital Humanities, because I really disapproved of this new techno... It was a techie kind of aesthetic that they were applying to literary criticism. And I wrote against it. But it was one of those things that while I was critiquing it, I started saying, well, you know, that part's interesting. And that part's interesting. And maybe I should call that guy to talk to him. And then I sort of fell in with computer scientists in Toronto, who were working on linguistic forms of artificial intelligence. In fact, they were at the dog park in my neighborhood. And my daughter liked to go visit the dog park. So I like met a bunch of them that way. And I became really 
pretty obsessed with it and pretty fascinated with it. And as you say, I started doing it in 2017, which was prehistory. I mean, before the invention of the Transformer. And the Transformer is the technology that has changed everything, in my view, with generative AI. For those of us who are genuinely ignorant, what is the Transformer? The Transformer was invented at Google by a bunch of Canadians in 2017. If I were to try to describe it to you, I would do a poor job. Like, I've tried very hard to understand it. I'm not an idiot, but it's an extremely complicated piece of technology that essentially takes every token of language, which is simple letters and symbols, and creates parameters or patterns between them and the position of every other token of language. And then it just creates this incredibly powerful text prediction software, which is all that any of this is, right? And the text prediction capacities have what they call emergent properties, which is they're just really weird things start to emerge from them pretty quickly. I wrote a piece for The New Yorker where I asked GPT-3, the T in GPT is transformer, by the way, to continue Coleridge's poem, Kubla Khan. And it did so in an absolutely coherent way that if you told me that Coleridge wrote it, I would believe you. It has the strange properties of this text prediction software emerge really from the transformer. Back in 2017, you published a short story, Twinkle Twinkle, as kind of an experiment to see whether or not algorithms could help you write. That was pretty bold at that point, wasn't it? Well, yeah. And it took a huge amount of effort because I had to get a computer scientist to design it for me, right? Like he actually built Sci-Fi Q, which was a kind of software that created these stylistic metrics that we could measure. And then I had to coalesce around certain corpuses of science fiction. Like I wanted to write a science fiction story. So I got it to create an algorithm of my favorite 50 science fiction short stories. And it was pretty good. But the Transformer-based stuff is, of course, on a completely different level. I mean, with the Transformer in 2020, I was able to write a 17% computer-generated story where I would just write blocks of text and then have the machine finish it, right? Or create gaps and then have the machine finish it in a very coherent way. And then I also trained stylistic bots with a different large language model called Cohere out of Canada, where I actually trained them to write like Nabokov, Charles Dickens, Jane Austen. And then I had each of them write a sentence to get a sort of perfected love story, if you will. Right. And then Jacob Weisberg called me in January and said, hey, do you want to write a novel using this stuff? And I said, yes, please. Let's figure out what we can do. This project, Death of an Author, is obviously on a completely different scale and requires a completely different methodology than any other creative AI that I've worked on before. What's the scale of evolution you've seen? Oh, I mean, from zero to a million, right? From sci-fi Q, which was a little handy thing that I had on my own computer and was just for me, that was really nice. Now you have Google's about to put Palm 2 into every Google Doc. So every Google Doc that you open, you'll be able to continue any text with AI, right? And they're using Palm 2, which is a hugely powerful large language model. And when I interviewed the developers of that in 2022, and it was already capable of really crazy, like low-level chain reasoning and able to translate into languages that it was not trained on, which is just, I mean, really strange. And, you know, the thing that I think you should remember about these leaps forward in AI, which happen, is that the scientists who develop them don't understand them. They don't know why they do that. They don't know why these results are coming out. They just know that they do it. This is an empirical rather than a theoretical evolution. The transformer, of course, is a theoretical thing, but it's actually rather that because of the 
nature of the size of the, the number of parameters. So like GPT-3 was 175 billion parameters. OpenAI is not telling us how many parameters there are in GPT-4. Palm, the version that I saw, was 540 billion parameters. So that is essentially unfathomable by a human being. You can't go and understand 540 billion patterns. If you started today and tried to do it for 100 years, you couldn't understand it, right? So it's a question, rather than empirical or theoretical, it is a kind of plunge into the unfathomable. And that is different. This is a probabilistic technology. It's not a truth-based technology. When it generates something, it isn't generating out of facts. It is generating strictly on the basis of probabilities. It's really neither theoretical nor empirical. It's probabilistic. The comedian Buck Henry once said, any technology you can't explain is magic. If magic is the encounter with powers that are unfathomable, then this is literally magic because no one can fathom them. The idea that they're going to regulate it and make it transparent or whatever, like you use this technology to do things that you can't do with your own brain. And that's the source of its power. That's what it's going to be used to do. And that, of course, has huge implications on intellectual life and so on. I wrote a piece for The Atlantic that was called Gods and Machines, right? Like these are magical entities in the strictly the technical sense of a power that you know is powerful, but you can't understand why, right? I mean, that to me is when I've experienced magic in my life, that's what I experience, right? And this technology is magic in that technical sense. I've been looking at a variety of impacts and it strikes me that what you can do is regulate the human, but not regulate the system. If I use AI to cheat you, then you can come after me for cheating, but you can't possibly regulate the AI. The key here is to regulate outcomes rather than processes, because the processes are unfathomable, but the outcomes are not. I would also point out that like most of the harms that people think about when I talk about AI are really rooted in other things right? Like, I mean, Facebook had to take down 2.2 billion fake profiles in 2019. That has nothing to do with generative AI. That's cut and paste. That's enough to do massive quantities of misinformation. We know that Instagram is associated with higher levels of depression for teenage girls and has all kinds of consequences on teenage girls. We know that. And also that algorithm, you can regulate it. You absolutely can regulate it. Whereas AI is essentially unfathomable. The only way to regulate it is essentially to stop it happening, right? And I think that would be a huge wasted opportunity, really. Like, it's a zero-one kind of proposition. Look, even if the United States wanted to do it, there are lots of countries that are not going to do it. So it's going to develop. It's going to happen. The truth is, the United States is the least likely to regulate. Canada, we regulate everything. Like, for Canada, like, Europe is going to regulate. Europe is definitely going to come up with some regulation. They could quite possibly kill the industry there. China, I don't think they're in this conversation, right? Like they use AI in very set ways. Also, we never see what they do. So it's very impossible for us to judge what they're actually producing. I mean, isn't it actually a potentially huge threat to any totalitarian system? Because it enables you potentially to have access to ways of thinking and researching and doing that are virtually beyond control. No, no, the opposite. It is the dream tool of totalitarian governments. Why is that? It's capable of the most systematic thinking imaginable. If you ask an AI to register every face in a city, that's easy. I mean, we're there. 
that's done. If you want AI to do elaborate, and I mean, the real danger here is allowing AI to be involved in any decision making at all. I am very optimistic about AI. I think it's a hugely beneficial power. I mean, I really don't like AI doomerism, but you know, let's be clear, like you cannot have an AI make decisions because you can't fire an AI. No AI is accountable to anyone. That's been true since computation, since the invention of computation too. Like you cannot have a computer make legal decisions because there's no recourse, right? It is absolutely the dream tool of every authoritarian government. It can impose mass control and mass surveillance on a level that would make Big Brother look like nothing. I mean, nothing. So this is the ultimate Orwellian dream. Well, it's a tool. And just like every other tool, like film is also the dream of authoritarian governments. Any mass technology can be used in a different way. I think people don't quite understand the probabilistic nature of AI. They don't quite understand that we're not dealing here with a truth engine at all. We're dealing here with a language engine. And the distinction between that is actually extremely vital, like extremely vital to understand. Absolutely, this could be a tool for abuse as much as for anything else. But I really believe that needs to be regulated or outcomes rather than processes. Because I think if you try and regulate processes, you're going to fail. Sort of the AI doomerism that I encounter, I think they want people to be scared of it because there is no solution. Whereas there is absolutely a solution to Instagram algorithms, 100%. There is absolutely a way to regulate that in a meaningful way. The outcomes are totally understood. All it takes is the political will. But they don't want that because that could actually change technology. Whereas regulating AI, I've never met anyone who can explain to me a meaningful way to regulate it without destroying it. Because the main claim in the EU was, who are the leaders in this, was transparency. Well, is this inherently an obscure technology? It's inherently an unfathomable technology. That's the nature of the transformer. I just think doomerism is really a mistaken approach to this. I think going straight to the apocalypse and human extinction events as a way of thinking through this is a big mistake. But also I think like, well, why not start with regulating some really basic aspects of the new era that we've entered? Because we know about those. And we're really, really very early here. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Throughout history, there are clear moments that define our nation's path, and now you can own a piece of that history. I'm thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition, one-ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin is more than an investment. It's a tribute to honest government and to America. 
available to order right now by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. March the Majority will come out on June 6th and is available for pre-order now. But what struck me when we were writing it is how relevant it is today. It's really more like a cookbook or a roadmap for how to both create a majority and how to use that majority to get a Democratic president to sign conservative reforms. But Joe, what was your sense of its relevance to today? Well, I think it's really important today because it provides, again, a roadmap for how you get things done and how you can get reforms through Congress and how you win elections. Because you can't do anything if you don't win elections. So I think it's important for those two reasons. And I felt that it really did provide a whole set of principled ways for people to think, and that if they do that, they're going to be dramatically more effective, again, in the Reagan tradition. So I just want to remind everyone that March the Majority will come out on June 6th, and it is available for pre-order now. So you decided to take a sort of different approach, and instead of being afraid, you decided you would see whether or not AI could write a book which I think is fascinating, which I assume is available for sale. Oh, it is. It's an audiobook, and it's an ebook on pushkin.fm. We have Eduardo Ballerini reading it, who the New Yorker called the voice of God. We decided the quality of the book was really important because, of course, you can get AI to write a garbage book. Like, that's no problem at all. The question is, can you use it to make something that people actually want to consume, right? I couldn't find a voice AI that I thought people would listen to for two hours. So we used Eduardo Ballerini instead, who's like the best of the best, and didn't worry about it. You know, if it's like, if AI isn't there yet, we just won't use it. But we will use the AI that we can, if that makes sense. You came out as an audiobook, but you didn't bring it out in print? No, because it was the speed. The idea for this started January 28th. This year, you're interviewing me about it, and it's available for purchase in May. So I actually don't know, I don't think any book has been released that fast since like the 18th century, you know, and like pamphlet culture. Like that's the last time someone put something in press this fast, right? As somebody who writes books regularly, that's an amazing turnaround. Right. I mean, you know, like it's only because Jacob has complete control over Pushkin that that could even be conceived of. There's no way it could be in print. 
you literally just can't find the presses to do it that quickly, right? So it's an ebook and it's audio. How did you conceptualize this? I mean, somebody says to you, why don't you try it out as a novel? What is your thought process? I'd done these earlier experiments, so I knew some of the limitations and weaknesses, and I'd use a bunch of different tech, use a bunch of different technology to write things before. So I wasn't starting from nothing. But I knew, for example, that getting any AI to write a plot was very poor. They're just very lousy at plot. Like what they are incredibly good at is really elaborate descriptions and dialogue. They can do that stuff just in an incredibly good way. And what they're particularly good at is imitating formulaic speech. Like if you ask it to write something in the style of a Lacanian professor of linguistics in 1973, like it can do that to a T. I mean, better than any human writer, just better than any human writer. So the question became, we obviously, we wanted to make it a detective book. We wanted to make it a thriller. We The question here is, can you read it? Can it be fun to read, right? Like, because I thought the other experiments were a bit more lyrical. And, you know, I knew that the tech could do that. But the question was, like, can it actually be gripping, right? And so originally, I wanted to write it like Jim Thompson. He's my favorite. I mean, they call him the dime store Dostoevsky. And it's like, completely accurate thing. And in his books, like every sentence has like multiple levels of meaning. Like what the guy is saying is different from what he means. It's also different from what the reader understands by it. And the computers were just absolutely incapable of doing that. Any AI that I worked on was just absolutely incapable of that kind of ironic double meaning. So I was like, okay, I was fooling around with a bunch of different language models. And I was like, okay, this isn't going to work. What can we do here? So I thought I could do something closer to Raymond Chandler, right? Where it's like really strong, functional, electric prose that moves, that keeps you moving. And so basically what I did is I would go to ChatGPT and I would say, write a scene. And then I would give it very close specifications of what I wanted. And then I would say containing the following information. And I would tell all the information that I wanted. It would generate it. It would generate a text. I would then take that into a program called PseudoWrite, which is a stochastic writing instrument. It's also GPT-based. So you can select the text, and then you can add, you can shorten, you can rephrase. It also has a customize button. So you can put the you can put in the customize button, like make more active, which I did with almost everything in the book. As a writer, you know, like you need to make everything more active all the time. So make it more active, make it more conversational, and then make it more like Hemingway or make it more like Chinese landscape poetry, or make it more like whatever, and then whatever the occasion required. And then that would give me a text that I could work with. And then I would just cut and paste that into the manuscript. And then I also wanted good lines, because Chandler has lines like, it was a blonde, a blonde to make a bishop kick a hole through a stained glass window. And I wanted really good lines like that. So I used a program called Cohere, for that. And that was a different process that involved creating prompts and then training the prompts on examples and then running the prompts until I got images and metaphors that I wanted. And a lot, like a very conscious process, I would say. Like it wasn't like going to ChatGPT and saying, like, hey, write me a novel. I was very much a creator here. Could it master both Hemingway and Faulkner? It's really good at Hemingway. The more involved the style, the more clear the style is, the better it is at imitating it. Coleridge was incredibly good at it. 
because Coleridge had this crazy in Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf the sacred river ran, you know, like crazy vocabulary and stuff. That's what it's best at. What it's weaker on is the more basic things. Formich's paradox, it says that one of the features of AI, the more complicated the task is, the better it is at it. The simpler the task is, the worse it is at it. So getting an AI to understand the faces of every single person in a city, relatively simple. Getting it to understand cow, like what a child does when they see a cow and like recognize it as a cow, incredibly difficult. And, you know, I found that applied absolutely to writing. Like, if you ask it to write something like James Joyce's Ulysses, huge, complicated, stylistic systems, that it's amazing at. Getting it to tell you an interesting story that might be of interest to you, almost impossible. It was a question of running into the strengths and away from the limitations, if you see what I mean. So did you have any notion when you started of what the book should look like? Oh, yeah. I knew that the machines were not good at the plot. I took copious notes about the plot and the division. Now, as I started to create this text with the machine, it would add details. The metaphors are completely alien. Like, they're really foreign. Ultimately, I feel like what I did here is get an alien to write a short novel. An alien who happens to be the sum total of our collective language. But there were these moments where... Obviously, I'm in control of this. This is a highly controlled aesthetic experiment. But there are other moments when the machines got quite wild. And that you could feel that sort of, I don't even know how to describe it, like a burst of literary energy, I guess. And then when I was able to get the machine's literary energy within my own control, those were rare moments. I would say they maybe 30 or 40 moments during the writing of the book. But that really felt powerful like awesome in the old sense of the word, like I was encountering something sublime. And that was a different aesthetic experience, I think, than anything I've had before as a writer. There were creative moments that I've never had before. Does it take massive computing power to create the AI, but you can use the application with a relatively simple computer? I'm on a MacBook Air. This requires a $20 a month subscription to GPT+. I think I pay pseudo right. $12 a month. I don't quote me on that. I'm not sure how much I pay them. These are like Netflix style subscriptions. We'll see what Google does with Bard on Google Docs. Google is an incredibly powerful AI that has not really been accessed by the public yet. And when it solves that public component, it could just dwarf everyone else. You end up with a remarkably inexpensive co-author. Absolutely. You end up with a $20 a month writer. How did you hook up with Malcolm Gladwell, who's been astonishingly successful? I mean, it was just Jacob. I've never met Malcolm Gladwell. Well, actually, I did meet him once at some party here, but I have no relationship with Malcolm Gladwell. We did get the machine to write his blurbs for this book, but I did have the machine write, I think it was three or four of them, where it was like one was effusive and one was if you're feeling obligated and the other was like just medium. And he chose the effusive. So, you know, I feel like that's a choice of some kind. <laughs> Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. 
It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balanced the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866 484 4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at silvercoin.com. That's silvercoin.com. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. March the Majority will come out on June 6th and is available for pre-order now, but what struck me when we were writing it is how relevant it is today. It's really more like a cookbook or a roadmap for how to both create a majority and how to use that majority to get a Democratic president to sign conservative reforms. But Joe, what was your sense of its relevance to today? Well, I think it's really important today because it provides, again, a roadmap for how you get things done and how you can get reforms through Congress and how you win elections. Because you can't do anything if you don't win elections. So I think it's important for those two reasons. Then I felt that it really did provide a whole set of principled ways for people to think, and that if they do that, they're going to be dramatically more effective, again, in the Reagan tradition. So I just want to remind everyone that March the Majority will come out on June 6th, and it is available for pre-order now. You wrote the book under the pen name Aidan Marshine. Yeah. Why did you decide to use a pen name? Well, it's an extremely complicated moment because, like, we really don't have the words. One of the things that's ironic about this incredible moment is that it's about language. It's about the transformation of language, but we don't really have the words to describe what we're dealing with here. So, you know, like, on the one hand, I'm absolutely the creator of this literary work, right? Like, 100% it is in my control. So, traditionally, we would just call that an author. On the other hand, I didn't write 95% of the words. So 
if you don't write the words, can you call yourself the author of a text? So essentially, Aiden Marchine was a way of understanding or just recognizing the collaborative nature of it, right? Like I'm just saying like, this is me plus these three technologies that have built it. And also, there are things in this book that I would not write. I wanted to get those sorts of things right in there because I think the experience of this book should be what the machines can do more than just me. You can go buy a dozen of my books, but this is something a little different. The problem here is the word author. Like, does it fit for any of these conditions? It's very hard. I remember when I was interviewing, I think it was the VP of Google DeepMind, in their promotional materials for Palm, they had said it was capable of understanding. And I challenged him about this because I was like, you know that this is just text prediction. And that text prediction is not understanding the way that we understand understanding. Like, I know what Samuel Taylor Coleridge is. Your machine does not know what Samuel Taylor Coleridge is. And he said, look, you're right. But on the other hand, when we say to this machine, write this in Bengali, it knows what Bengali means. What word are we supposed to use other than understanding? And I was like, you know, you're probably right. We need two words for understanding, one which is registering meaning and the other which is having a grounding in meaning. But, you know, we've never faced a condition where those two things have been separate. And now we are. Simil and, and it's the same thing with the authorship question. We don't actually have the language for what this is yet. I mean, I'm thinking of calling myself AI art director for something like that. Are you, under current rules, are you able to copyright your book? It's actually a gray area. No one quite knows yet. I mean, obviously, I have 5% of the book, and I have the essay at the end. So there is a copyright on those aspects of it. There's no question that I have the moral right to it. I am the creator of it. But the actual copyright law is actually incredibly behind the times with this. But, you know, it's going to catch up in two years, and I'll probably get the copyright then, right? It doesn't technically fit the definition of copyrightable work at the moment, which is totally absurd, really. It's interesting to watch the Writers Guild with their strike and their concerns. Since they represent people whose entire livelihood is writing, one of their concerns has to be that somebody's going to come along who can, in effect, train AI to write as though they were the screenplay writer in a way that eliminates the screenplay writer. Well, I got to say, from my experience of doing this, good luck. If you think some executive is going to sit down at ChatGPT and say, write me, John Wick 5, and it's going to do it? No, I don't see it happening anytime soon. I would put that the replacement of screenwriters very low on my list of possible outcomes. Copywriters, ad copywriters, Google ad copywriters, low-level legal clerks, even people who write PR notices, huge challenge. But the more formulaic the writing the easier it is for a machine to imitate. That's just a key thing to understand. And if you want any kind of originality at all, I'm not sure that Hollywood does, you're going to need a person for that. You wrote an Atlantic article in December called The College Essay is Dead. As a former college teacher, I found that interesting. Do you think this is a function of AI or what? The formulaic writing is that's what AI does to a superb degree that is basically unmatchable by human beings. I'm a professional writer. From the time I've been about 10 years old, I've been trained in a very specific skill of how to write an 800-word essay where you have 
three sentences that bring you into the issue, leading to a thesis statement, followed by three arguments, followed by a conclusive statement. Lead, and exp- I learned that skill at great cost, and it took me a long time to master it. A computer has that like that now. If you say write a 1,500-word undergraduate essay on this subject, it will just do something that is at least a B plus, right? And with GPT-4, probably an A minus, right? So AI may do to brain work what the invention of the internal combustion engine did to physical labor, and that you suddenly have a replacement. Here's what I think. It's going to replace a lot of boring formulaic writing things, which are a lot of our creative life, but it will not replace creative life. The value of creativity will actually, in my opinion, increase because the mere skill at composition, mere skill at elegant hitting the marks of a formula is about to be devalued enormously because you can just do it with a $20 a month subscription. What will matter is being able to express your intention. And not only that, but being able to people to feel your intention and your will as a writer. Well, and being able to have an intention. I always tell people, the writing isn't hard, it's the thinking. Exactly. It's the willing. One thing that these machines don't do at all, and it's really important to remember, is they don't ask questions and they don't recognize meaning. Like this novel that I wrote, the reason that it's better than anyone else's AI novel is that I know what a paragraph looks like. I know what a good paragraph looks like. I know what a good sentence looks like. I know what good dialogue looks like. So when I see it, I know it. And I can cut it and move it into a document, right? And it does not do recognition. And it does not do questioning. It's a tool. I think much like design, when Photoshop arrived, like it seemed like it was the end of design. Right? It seemed like, oh my God, we're not going to need any designers anymore. Why do we need people who know how to manipulate photographs when you just go on your computer and turn it around? And no, the opposite happens. Suddenly, you need a lot of designers. And you need a lot of designers who know a lot about how this technology works. Suddenly, we also live in a world just crammed with design, where everything has to be designed from these headphones, this bottle, everything must be well designed. And I think something similar could happen with this technology. I don't think it's going to replace will at all. It's just going to make certain tasks easier to do. Do you think your next book will be AI enhanced? We did this as an experiment. But the truth is, the next time I'm going to use it for what it's good at only and do everything else myself. And I'm not going to worry about what the percentages of are of what or the percentages are of that or whatever. And I'm also going to use it for things that only it can do, which is really where we're going to get to the really interesting stuff, I think. That's wild. I hope to have a chance to pursue this again as the system evolves and as your own career evolves. This has been really fun. I hope that you will give my best to Aidan Marchine. And I want to congratulate you both on your new novella, Death of an Author, which is now available as an audiobook and an ebook. And I encourage our listeners to check it out. This is a truly groundbreaking moment and something you've done as a pioneer that's just fabulous. Thank you very much. Thank you to my guest, Stephen Marsh. You can get a link to order his new book, Death of an Author, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts 
and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. At- 